I'm honored, my name is Josh Graves, and I'm honored to introduce my friend to you, Scott McKnight, and his wife, Chris, is here somewhere. Scott and Chris come to us from the Chicagoland area, so if you are a betting person, the over-under on Cubs references right now is at eight for the next 45 minutes. Um, Mike asked me to introduce Scott, and he said, don't, don't worry about the formal stuff, you can read the website and his academic background and all of his publishing. Um, but I think Scott is important to the Churches of Christ for the following reasons. Um, number one, he knows us really well. He has shown an interest and a curiosity about our peculiar little tribe. Um, and he's been very helpful because as a Bible person, um, he Scott is a living reminder um, that there are a lot of strong Bible people outside of the Church of Christ who can out-Bible the movement that thought it was the Bible movement. Um, and I hope that engenders humility in us, as we heard from Tom Wright a few years ago, as we've heard from um, other teachers, that this living word is inexhaustible, and it's always fresh, it's always speaking, and we grapple and we, we wrestle. Um, so I'm going to say a prayer over Scott, and then uh, we will welcome him to Pepperdine this morning. We pray to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just as your spirit hovered over the waters in the very beginning of creation, God, we pray that your spirit would be felt and present in this room as Scott speaks to our hearts, our minds, and our souls. God, thank you for Scott's emphasis on the Jesus Creed and his courage to help Bible Christians to remember that a relationship with Jesus and his community far supersedes any intellectual grasping of biblical text. And God, thank you for the words that Scott has prepared this morning. May we be open and vulnerable and transparent as we receive his teaching. We pray this in the name of the risen Savior. Amen. Let's welcome Scott McKnight to Pepperdine. I get to answer it. Is this on? One, two, three. Yep. Pull it up a bit. I get to answer it. Or you buy donuts for the class the next session. Or you have to sing a song. But that's not an option with the Church of Christ because that's what you want to do anyway. So, <laughs> so somebody has to bring donuts for everyone. Well, it's really good to be back. You know, it's never bad to go to Malibu uh, or Pepperdine, but uh, I like being with Churches of Christ people, and sometimes they like being with me. And so I get invited every couple years, not every year, so you can remind Mike Cope of that, whom I call the Mike Pope Cope. <laughs> but I've been... Uh, arguing with Christianity Today for about 15 years to consider the Churches of Christ evangelical, and so they would put them in the magazine, and uh, Randy Harris keeps telling me, we're not evangelical, so leave us alone. <laughs> and evidently, church, uh, Christianity Today agrees, so, so I've quit fighting that one. But uh, I, I want to talk today about uh, 
about the Holy Spirit and a new book I have called Open to the Spirit, which I don't care if you read as long as you buy. <laughs> My publisher told me to tell you that. And I, um, in talking about the Spirit with other Churches of Christ uh, preachers, we, whom we call pastors, but I've learned to be careful, uh, that, um, that the Holy Spirit has not been a big emphasis in the Churches of Christ, uh, that it is uh, what Francis Chan called the neglected God or the forgotten God, a dimension of theology that probably could uh, use some more emphasis. And so I was really glad when uh, Mike Pope invited, uh, Mike Cope, sorry, that, w that one was accidental. Uh, when, when Cope asked me to speak and was on the spirit, I thought, well, this is a perfect time for me because this book is just coming out. And so I, I want to draw attention to some themes in the book um, and see if maybe we can become people who are more open to the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit, as presented in the pages of the Bible, uh, is a reality, is a person, uh, but that person is non-coercive, that if we are not cooperative or open or receptive of the Spirit, then we have very little chance of experiencing the power of the Spirit and the glory of what the Spirit can do in us and through us. I grew up in a church uh, that was fundamentalist Baptist that was not, uh, that I would say was not open to the Spirit. Uh, and, and I'll get to that in just a second, but I, I want to tell you a story of when I was a four-year-old that I became, see these phones going off, see this and Donuts. That's, this is going to be a happy group on tomorrow. And uh, I grew up with a funny experience that, oddly enough, as a four-year-old, it shaped my perception of the Holy Spirit. My father was a track and field coach in a small community near the Mississippi River, a place called Root House, Illinois, which I don't suppose anyone has ever heard of. It's near Springfield and not too far from Hannibal, Missouri, so I grew up thinking that Mark Twain was the end of the world. But um, when I was uh, four, every afternoon, I would just instinctively know it was time for me to go to the track, and I would, I would get to play with, you know, on the track and the high jump pit. This was before they had cool pits. This was sand or sawdust. And the track was made of cinders. And the, the, um, every afternoon, I would just recognize it was about the time, and I would walk from my home without ever telling my mother. I just left and walked across the town to the high school, and I crossed a highway, two-lane highway. This is in the world. This was when America was safe. But I walked across, and one morning, my mother said to me, Scott, uh, today, don't go to the high school in the afternoon. She said, just, just listen to the little voice inside you, and the voice will tell you not to go. All right. So about 3 o'clock, I knew it was time to go to the high school, so I walked to the high school, walked across the town, crossed the highway to the high school, and I was all by myself, and it was paradise to be at this track by myself. 
And about 4 o'clock, my mother pulled up in an old Nash. I don't know if you've heard of these cars. And there was a big faucet there. And she washed me off with, with not a little patience. She was pretty mad. She threw me in the back seat, shut the door, got in the front seat to drive, shut her door, turned around and looked at me and said, I told you to listen to the little voice inside you. And I said, I did. And she said, what did that little voice say to you? And I said, it told me I could go to the high school. <laughs> this made me very nervous about listening to the little voice inside you. <laughs> and made me dubious of, of claims to spirit promptings. Well, my mother and father were fundamentalist Baptists, and my grandmother on my father's side were holiness Pentecostal, which is a world away. And they lived in southern Illinois. And my, mom, my grandmother worshiped at a church, a holiness Pentecostal church in Heron, Illinois. And in the summers when we visited my grandparents, we would go to their church on Sunday evening, which was bad for two reasons. Number one, it was the summer, and there was no such thing as air conditioning in holiness Pentecostal churches in southern Illinois. And number two, uh, it was uh, always interruptive of some kind of wiffle ball game. So we would have to get dressed and be sweaty and go to this church. And it was, um, it was like a circus for me as a young kid. I, I was about eight or nine years old, I remember, when we went. And all of a sudden, in this Holiness Pentecostal church, my, uh, they would say it's prayer time. And the whole place would erupt in sounds. And some people would walk forward and get on their knees and pray. And some people were praying in tongues. And I didn't know what in the world what was going on. And one lady had a huge uh, uh, Simpson, Mrs. Simpson, what's her name? on Bar Marge Simpson hair thing that went, just went all the way to the, it's like the Tower of Babel. <laughs> in more than one way. So... She, she's walking forward, uh, and my grandmother turns to me and my sisters and says, she never has enough salvation to last a week. She gets saved every week. That's what you call radical Arminianism. So it was, it was such a bewildering experience of Pentecostal experience that as we were driving home, my father spent most of the time uh, what people today would call deconstructing what just happened. But it made me even more suspicious of spirit-prompted type behaviors. If that's what Pentecostalism is, and that's what the charismatic movement is, and that's what the spirit is, you know, I could do something else. Uh, and so I, I attended a church that was uh, mildly anti-charismatic, but most, mostly just non-charismatic. We just never talked about the Holy Spirit. And so in the 70s, when I was in college, uh, and the Jesus movement was flying high and wild, and it was cool, um, and I had friends involved in this, and I was reading books about this, I, I began to rethink what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. And I had friends who told me experiences that they had spoken in tongues and never tried to do it. It just happened. Well, I was kind of hoping that it would happen that way to me rather than trying to 
You know, I, I read books on the things you have to say, uh, and if you say them often enough, all of a sudden you'll be speaking in tongues, and I thought, that's artificial. I don't believe in that kind of thing. So I began to study gifts of the Spirit, and as, this was the time. Some of you who are from California will remember the days of Ray Steadman in body life and his emphasis upon spiritual gifts. And there was a sudden resurrection among all kinds of evangelical types of interest in spiritual gifts. So as a result of that, I became theologically convinced that we have no business telling God which spiritual gifts are going to be used in the church today, and we have no business deciding in advance what the Spirit of God might do among us. That's what I became convinced of. I never spoke in tongues. I tried several times really hard, and nothing happened. And uh, I think I talk enough as it is, so I probably don't need to speak in tongues. But I've had uh, so many close friends um, and theological uh, companions along the way who have been charismatic that I, I just gradually moved into total openness to the Spirit. And a few years ago, uh, I was sitting at breakfast with my agent, uh, literary agent, and we began to map books to write about uh, with Waterbrook. And the, the goal was to write books that emphasize the Bible on topics that are of pressing concern in the church. And so we, li we lit upon three topics. One on heaven, because of all this um, uh, near-death experiences and people's stories of having encountered heaven, etc. So uh, I wrote a book on heaven called The Heaven Promise. Then we wanted to talk about angels, because people... Um, talk a lot about angels, and what really surprised me in studying about angels is, is the number of people who have told stories about it, and when I've talked to many pastors, they will tell me in hospitals when they are visiting the dying that there are very, it's very common for other family members to have angel-type experiences around deathbeds, something I'd never heard anybody talk about. And most pastors that I've talked to don't want to talk about it, don't want to tell these stories. And what I learned very quickly is that most people who've had angel experiences don't want to talk about it because people think they're weird. So I, I, I encountered so many angel experiences. Not that I had them, but I encountered people with them. And the third book was on the Spirit, and that's, that's a, a brief introduction to get to talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit with you. And at 10.30 or so, I'll try to draw things to a thread, uh, to a finish, and then we'll have some questions, and uh, I'll respond. I don't always have answers. Sometimes I have questions back, and uh, I just ought to say something about the Cubs, because the, the odds are high. <laughs> huh? That's one. Oh, you said, I'm going to manage seven more? Well, well, that's easy. Holy Spirit, Cubs, same thing. <laughs> All right, here's, uh, here's the first problem I think we need to uh, think about. If God has given us the Spirit, and I don't believe everybody believes that. I think people believe it's in the Bible and it's in Christian theology. But if God has given us the Spirit to indwell us and transform us, then we need to be open to the Spirit to experience the Spirit. It's not just going to happen. Now, sometimes it does happen like that, but most people 
have to become not only educated about it, but open to it. We can stifle, we can quench, we can shut out the Spirit, we can shut down the Spirit simply by refusing to think about the Spirit and to be open to the Spirit. The second problem that I believe we have to face, and I think that this is particularly important in the churches of Christ, and that is that um, for some people in the churches of Christ, because, and I've, I've been told this by people who know, so, so you're going to have to listen to this one. And it's also characteristic of some of the experiences that I've had in the kind of Christianity that I grew up in, is that some people think the Holy Spirit is contained by Scripture, contained by Scripture, so that they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. Whereas I think we need to develop a theology that we believe the Holy Spirit is constrained by Scripture. Not contained by Scripture, but constrained so that the Holy Spirit's activity in our world today will be consistent with what we see in Scripture, but never always identical with it. There are always are new breakthroughs and new opportunities for the Spirit to break into our world and our lives and to transform, but it will show a consistency. All right? So if those two are the two problems, this is what I think is the paradigm. And for some people, this is quite controversial. And as a professor, that means I like to talk about it. Right? I'm not a preacher, you know, or a pastor who's worried about people liking them. I'm a professor who's more worried about people uh, not being challenged by what is being said. So that, that's, you know, so I want to talk about the importance of the Holy Spirit for Jesus. He becomes the paradigm of being open to the Spirit. He is the paradigm. And if you can find this book, and I would recommend that you buy it, it is a book by Gerald Hawthorne, who for some 40 years taught Greek at Wheaton College. He wrote a book called The Presence and the Power, on the presence of the Spirit of God in the ministry of Jesus and his teachings. And the, uh, the amazing thing about this book is it's been in print for a long, long time, and it was his master's thesis at Wheaton College, and it is a brilliant book. And every time I saw Jerry, I told him how much I liked the book, and every time I told him that, he told me that he was revising it. And then he died and it let, it's left unrevised. So it is a great book, and I hope you can find it. Sometimes it's hard to find. I think it's in print right now. But I believe that if you look at the gospel records, and I, I want to look at some Bible passages, plenty of them uh, this morning with you. If we look at the Bible passages, we will see that Jesus, now I want to say it this way, he needed the Spirit to do what he did. All right? If you don't believe that, you're, you're believing probably a kind of Christology that is a little off base. Because as a human, he lived as we live, and he needed the Spirit to accomplish what he accomplished. And so we need to emphasize the presence of the Spirit of God in the life of Jesus. We will start in Luke chapter 1, 
with the presence and the activity of the Spirit in the days of the arrival of the Messiah, beginning in the days of John the Baptist with Zechariah and Elizabeth. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15, we read this. And this is an angel of the Lord appearing to Zechariah, for he will be great, verse 15, in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Now, this is talking about our friend J.B., John the Baptist. All right? But this is, this is critical for understanding what Luke is going to do with the Holy Spirit in the gospel. And in verse 17, he says, And he will go on before the Lord in the Spirit. Now, sometimes they have this as lowercase and not uppercase, but it's, uh, that's, that's a judgment by translators is that he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist has the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is also present with Mary. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, we hear this. The angel answered, you know, this is Mary's great question. How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So the birth of Jesus is attended by the Holy Spirit, the same spirit of Elijah, the same spirit of Zechariah and John the Baptist, the same spirit upon Mary. In Luke chapter 2, in one of those great Christmas story passages, we read this about Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 27. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is, this is pure eschatology, Messiah, justice, redemption of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good uh, way to close it off. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, at circumcision, and, and um, offering a sacrifice to redeem their baby child, as Michael Card sings in his great song with the clever title, Simeon's Song. You can do better than that, but it's a great song. Simeon grabbed the baby in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. So prior to Jesus, we see the age of the Spirit. It's like all the powers of God in history are gathering their forces in the Spirit to change history, to bring the Messiah in, and to prepare the world for the Messiah. Now, according to John the Baptist, Jesus is someone who has the Spirit. 
Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 reads this, As soon as Jesus was baptized, He went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on Him. Now, this can be explained in a number of ways, and all of them are explanations and constructions. But for most people, this is the Messiah receiving the Spirit as an anointing in order to carry out the Messianic task. Because the Messiah cannot do the Messianic task without the Spirit, just as you cannot do what God has called you to do as God wants you to do it without the Spirit of God. That's all there is to it. You know, we, we have to embrace this. And being dull to the presence of the Spirit, not thinking about the Spirit, not being attentive to the Spirit or open to the Spirit makes us less receptive to what the Spirit might be doing in us. And we do this because we're in part afraid. We are afraid of what might happen if the Spirit of God actually were to seize control of our lives and to seize control of our churches. It just might not, you know, I can say this because I'm friends, someone just might blow a horn. Whoa, that's radical. It's not. I just want you to know that. Uh, and it gets old. But you just never know what the Spirit of God might do with people. You can't contain what the Spirit can do. We have to be open to what the Spirit can do. And it's the fear of the Spirit many times that motivates our being contained, our, our view that the Scripture contains the Spirit. In John chapter 1, we find John the Baptist again talking about Jesus and the Spirit. John 1, verses 32 to 33. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Very interesting expression in, the jo in John's gospel, that word remain, because we are to remain and abide and he abides, etc. Very important word. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is identified by John the Baptist as the witness to who he is by the dawning or the arrival of the Spirit of God upon Jesus. And according to, Simeon, according to God the Father in the passage in Matthew chapter 3 on the baptism, Jesus is identified in Matthew 3, 16 to 17 as the, as the Messiah by the Father, as the Son of God, because of the Spirit. After the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus, the Father says, This is my Son, whom I love, or whom my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. So, let's back off. Prior to Jesus, Zechariah, John the Baptist, Elizabeth, the angel, the Mary, Mary are all talking about the Spirit of God. When Jesus is baptized, John the Baptist witnesses to, he, to who he is, and the Father announces who he is, all connected to the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is what we mean by the necessity of the Spirit 
in the ministry of Jesus. Now, Jesus himself tells us that he did his ministries by the power of the Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, we have this inaugural sermon. And because he was Anglican, he was only given 10 minutes to give his first sermon. Because if you read this, it doesn't take very long to read this one. So this was not a Baptist sermon. I'm just kidding, in part. I've often wondered about this, and I've studied it, and I don't think we know, even though some scholars know. Uh, sometimes scholars know things they can't know, but because they're so clever, it sounds like they do know it and that we should all agree with what they know. I would love to know if Jesus got to choose this text or if this text was chosen for him or because he knew this was the day of the lectionary where they were going to read from Isaiah that Jesus decided he would show up and give the sermon for the day. We don't know this, but all of them work in sermons, so you just use it every now and then and don't overdo it. But unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Right? This is from Isaiah 61. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, there's a lot going on in this text in Isaiah. It's a beautiful text. It is the right text to choose if you're the Messiah for your first public sermon. You can't get a more potent text of all that Jesus is going to do. The Spirit of the God being on him, ministry of the gospel to the poor, justice for those who are oppressed, and jubilee is announced, the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Because in first century Judaism, you stood to read scripture and you sat to teach. And I've often thought, this is something that we need to recover in our churches. Not that people, preachers should sit, but the most authoritative moment on Sunday morning is the public reading of Scripture, not the sermon. Those sermons are good, but they're not the Word of God, unless you're, unless you're Karl Barth. Then I don't know what he means by it. But... It is, it is the reading of Scripture that's so authoritative that they stand and then they sit under it to teach it. So he sits. The eyes of everyone is on, on the synagogue is fastened on him, and he says, Today this Scripture is fulfilled in your midst, that the Spirit of God is upon him. So Jesus acknowledges that he is doing what he is doing because the Spirit of God is upon him. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, we have Jesus once again confessing that what he does is by the power of the Spirit. If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now think about this. What Jesus is saying is he only exercises demons because the Spirit of the God is upon him to exercise that powerful ministry. We only have to make a slight move, just a little bit, to realize that all his miracles are done by the power of the Spirit. 
And these, this is the Messiah who in Matthew's structure is the Messiah of word, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and the Messiah of deed, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, where he does 10 miracle stories. And the Messiah of word and the Messiah of deed does everything he, he does by the power of the Spirit. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 reads this. We have once again Jesus confessing the potency of the Spirit. Luke 5, 17. One day, one day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of the Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord, this is an expression in the Old Testament for the Spirit of God, was with Jesus to heal the sick. All right. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, the angel, John the Baptist. Jesus himself acknowledges that he needs the Spirit. The apostles support Jesus in his statement. That's a good thing that they agree with him. In Acts chapter 10, we have this great sermon by Peter preaching to Gentiles, the first sermon like this. Acts chapter 10, verses 37 to 38. This is one of my uh, favorite passages in the New Testament because it is an illustration of the gospel and what first century evangelism and preaching were all about. And this is the Apostle Peter. And Peter says, well, I'll start in verse 34, because I don't know if you know all this. This is Peter preaching to Cornelius at, uh, you know, on the Mediterranean. It's a pretty cool place. Peter says, this is a very condescending moment. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is a little out of whack with evangelical gospel preaching and judgment by works, but it's very biblical, all right? You know the message God, or the gospel God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the gospel of peace, this is between Jews and Gentiles, through Jesus the Messiah, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in the Galilee after the baptism that John preached. So all he's doing is telling the story of Jesus, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. God being with him, the Spirit of God being upon him, gave Jesus all the power that he needed to do all these good deeds. Peter says Jesus did his ministry and his miracles by the power of the Spirit. He did not do them because he was the Son of God. He did not do them because he was divine. He did them as a human being because the Spirit of God was upon him. Now, I just want to insert this. If he needs it, you think you don't? Now, there's a, you don't know about this. This is brand new information. You know, historical Jesus scholars, they study Aramaic words to figure out what Jesus originally said. They've recently studied the Aramaic word amen that we use in our congregations for amen. And you know what they discovered? What was behind 
amen in the original language? Dilly dilly. And I think our churches are going to have to start saying dilly dilly because they are afraid to say amen anymore. Dilly dilly? I knew we'd go. I knew we'd. That's, that really isn't true, but I just thought, I thought I'd bring that in because you're, you're a little slow on the uptake today. Now notice, he says, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him. By, notice that expression. They killed him, because Peter in two said you killed him. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people, etc. Now, notice this. In verse 44, Peter has done nothing here about offering an invitation. He's done nothing about the four spiritual laws. He didn't even use the bridge diagram. He told people about Jesus. And he told the story of Jesus and what happened. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Now, this is, this is a, a real experience of first century Christianity. The circumcised believers, who thought they were a cut above the rest, <laughs> dilly dilly. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on people outside the churches of Christ. That, that's, that's my paraphrase for the word Gentiles. It's right here. It's right here. All right. For they heard them speaking tongues and praising God. All right. Now, a little fun, but... This is a potent scene. If you tell people about Jesus, the Spirit of the God is at work. And that's what preaching ought to be. Preaching about Jesus invites the Spirit of God to attend and to draw people to Christ. That's what preaching was for Peter. He simply told them the story of Jesus and people got saved because the Spirit of God attended his way. Now, one more witness to this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, we're running out of time here. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and who through the Spirit of holiness, which can be translated, and which I would translate as the Holy Spirit, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The implication of this is this, is that you and I, by diminishing the significance of the Spirit, by ignoring the Spirit, are quenching the Spirit, are stifling the Spirit, and are not even contained by Scripture. In other words, we are not consistent with Scripture itself if we do not tell the story of Jesus as the story of God's Spirit at work in the Messiah. 
That's what's going on here. Dilly dilly. Jerry Hawthorne put it this way in one of his conclusions. Jesus needed the Spirit, the Spirit's power, to lift him out of the human restrictions, to carry him beyond his human limitations, and to enable him to do the seeming impossible. When you face in your churches back home, when you face in your families and in your neighborhoods and in your work, impossible odds is when you need to become doubly conscious of the power of the Spirit of God to take you where you've never been before. Dilly, dilly. All right. Now, I'll close with this, and then we'll have questions. I was um, preaching in South Africa a series on Pentecost. During the week of Pentecost in South Africa, still to this day, the Reformed churches have a, a service every night all on the Holy Spirit. So I was asked to do a series on the Holy Spirit. And I found a statement by my professor, James D.G. Dunn, that I really liked, and I quoted it as the theme statement uh, for every, every talk. And I did Sunday all the way through the next Saturday. Every, every sermon had this statement in it, and it was hot in South Africa, and I was sweating, and sweat dripped off the page onto my notes, and it blobbed out the footnote reference that I had, and so I didn't know where it was from. But I just knew it was a great statement. And one time I was sitting in, I was sitting in my office at home, my library, and I was writing, and I wanted to quote Jimmy Dunn's statement on the Holy Spirit, and I looked at my notes, and there was no footnote there because my sweat had blobbed it out. So uh, this was the statement. The Spirit of God, you should write this on your mirror, transcends human ability and transforms human inability. The Spirit transcends human ability and transforms human inability. Now, if you get the words mixed up, it's okay. It's still pretty cool. So I wrote to Jimmy, who's my professor, and I said, I said Jimmy, I have this quotation from you. Where did you say it? He said, I really don't know. And then, uh, so I went back to my books, and I looked. I could not find it. So I saw Jimmy one time at an academic meeting, and I said, Jimmy, where, where did you say this? He said, I don't know. But he says, I sure hope I did, because I like it. <laughs> well, one day I was just looking at something in a commentary on the book of Acts by Jimmy Dunn. I opened up, and there was the statement underlined. So I wrote him and told him, page 12, Acts of the Apostles. But that's where he said this. The Spirit of God transcends human ability. So you will do things you never thought you could do. All right? Ask any of my Sunday school teachers, and they will all tell you, I should not be here doing what I'm doing. But some of them would say I should be in jail. The Spirit of God transcends human ability and transforms human inability. That's what the Spirit of God does for us. And I, if you just keep that as a mantra for a while, that the Spirit of God can, can help me do things that I'm pretty good at and make them be better, and the Spirit of God can take things that I could never do and accomplish them through me, you will understand 
what the Spirit of God is here for. All right? All right. This is the prayer of invocation I have in the book. Lord, I am open to the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a confession. We have to start there. Come to me, dwell in me, speak to me, so I may become more like Christ. Lord, give me the courage to be open. Lord, I am open to the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. That's the invocation we need to pray. All right. Thank you.